Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We are continuing uh, in our study in the book of Hebrews. We come this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Would you pray with me before we read that text? Our Father, again, we, we come to you. We come to you because we, we need you. Uh, we come to you because you are the creator and the sustainer of all things. We come to you because you are the God of all grace and mercy. So we come to hear your voice uh, afresh this morning. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us in our faith as we seek to serve you in the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, at the center of every human heart is a love for glory. Whoever you are, whatever you do, whatever you are living for at root is glory. We all want to know some glorious thing. We all want to experience some glorious thing. We all give our lives to some glorious thing. And glory is, is the splendor of a thing, right? It's, it's the wow factor, it's what makes you go home and tell your wife about it. it. It's what makes you annoying to your friends who are just not impressed with the same thing and wish you would shut up. That glory may be the glory of our own reputation, or it may be the glory of sports, or it may be the glory of a medium-rare steak, or it may be the glory of a quiet, peaceful home. It may be the glory of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? But inevitably, some glory grips our heart and we give ourselves over to it. I remember talking with a non-Christian young lady who worked at a video game store at one point, and she uh, insightfully said this very same thing. She said, we all need something to give our lives to, something to live for. For her, it was video games, and she was fine with that. Uh, knowing, buying, playing, discussing video games, she thought, gave her life meaning. Now, that may seem silly to some of you, but most of the things we live for are really no different. We live for the things of this age, created things, earthly things, temporary things, fading things. What glory has a hold of your heart? What do you dream about? What do you long for? What do you think about in the silence? Where does your mind drift when your teacher or your preacher drones on? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? 
Where do you willingly spend your money and your time? What agitates you? Where do you get angry when something, that is, some glory in your life is threatened? What glory has hold of your heart? Here's what we're going to see this morning, that for the Christian and anyone willing to look to Christ, the glories that await us are found in the glorious person of Jesus. Therefore, hold fast. The glories that await us are found in the glorious person of Jesus. Therefore, hold fast. So first, let's talk about the glories that await us. Uh, Being gripped with the glories of this age, of course, doesn't always look like being a fanboy. Uh, Sometimes it looks like fear. The glory of the powers of this age grips our hearts, and we are afraid of what this world might do to us. Afraid of other kids on the playground, or afraid of the critique of our boss, or afraid of speaking out when we disagree. The other person's influence or words or power seems to control us. Sometimes we're afraid of unseen things like the power of economic forces or the power of disease. Sometimes being gripped with the glories of this age looks like bitterness. We love the world and all it offers, but others have it and we don't. And so we grow angry and bitter and jealous. And of course, sometimes it looks like obsession, right? We never stop thinking, talking, dreaming about something this world has to offer. Whatever the case, we look around at the world with eyes wide open. We marvel at what we see and whether that frightens us or comforts us, whether it excites us or embitters, these created realities control our hearts, right? They hold court. They have sway. The glories of this age are often the influencers of our soul. But this is not what we were made for. This is not what we have been called to. And so chapter 3 begins in verse 1 like this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. At first, uh, the writer of Hebrews calls them holy brothers, right? Not, not biological brothers, not fraternity brothers. However we might use the term brothers, there is a kind of brotherhood that transcends all of these. That is, there is a family that is distinct from every other family. There is a family with a holy father and a holy son, and we are his holy brothers. Because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So we are set apart. We're set apart from the world as the family of God. And as a result, we share in what the writer calls a heavenly calling, that is a heavenward calling. Paul in Philippians calls it the upward call of God. Hebrews has already talked about it in chapter 2, verse 10, in a phrase that we kind of glossed over last week when it talked about bringing many sons to glory. There the writer has talked about Jesus becoming one of us, that he might call us brothers And then he might bring us with him to glory. See, our heavenly calling is a call to glory. Uh, What does that mean? Well, uh, remember what happened to Jesus. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 9, we were told that Jesus suffered, that he became for a little while lower than the angels, and then he was crowned with glory and honor. All the angels now worship him, Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy 32 is saying. He, was rece- he has received the name that is above every name, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. 
And that glory, the the glory of Jesus consists in, in the power and life of the resurrection body, in his open vindication in the resurrection, in the approval of his father demonstrated in the resurrection, and in the authority that he has been given over heaven and earth. We await such glory. Hebrews says that we share in his heavenly calling. We share in this heavenly calling. And of course, who do we share it with? We share it with Jesus, first and foremost. Paul calls us fellow heirs with Christ, provided, he says, we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. In that same passage in in Romans 8, verse 23, he says, we await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God is bringing many sons to glory, and and he uh, will do that fully when we too have been raised from the dead and crowned with glory and honor. First, by being given resurrection bodies, but second, that will constitute an, an open vindication before the world when we are raised with Christ and when all see us risen with Christ. But third, maybe more important, that resurrection will be an open demonstration of the approval of our Father. And finally, Scripture says we will be seated with Christ and given positions of authority. That's the glory that awaits us. The same glory that Christ has entered into in the resurrection awaits us as his brothers. Resurrection bodies, open vindication, our Father's open approval, position of of status and authority in the kingdom, provided we suffer with Christ now in order that we may also be glorified with him then, as Paul puts it. God is at work to bring many sons to glory, and that has begun in the exaltation of Jesus, but it will continue at the general resurrection at the end of the age. Now, don't be thrown off by the word uh, sons and the word brothers. Uh, by the way, right, in our, in our culture, we're sensitive to gender-exclusive language, but there is actually n- no exclusion going on here. First, the word brothers, that masculine Greek word, could be used to refer to both brothers and sisters. Uh, the point is not to exclude, but that the masculine word includes both. Uh, but second, uh, maybe more important, the word sons Uh, The word sons is important because in that culture, sons are the ones who receive the inheritance. To call men and women sons was then actually honoring women as equals in the family of God because men and women are both together heirs. Hence, men and women are both, in biblical language, sons because heirs. And so we have this heavenly calling to glory. And let me point out again that that one glory or another will grip your heart, but ultimately only one. You cannot serve, as Jesus said, both God and money. Just before that, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Again, what glory has hold of your heart? Is it the glories of earthly treasure or the glories of the coming age? You were made to marvel at glory. You were made to be gripped with glory. You were made to delight in glory. The only question is what glory has hold of your heart? So there is a glory that awaits us. And the glory that awaits us is found 
in the glorious person of Jesus. Now, I want to say something that may sound odd at first, but I, I think you'll understand where I'm going in just a minute. Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was not a Christian the way Muhammad was a Muslim or Moses was a Jew or Buddha was a Buddhist. Jesus did not participate in the Christian religion. Right? It might be better to say that he founded it, though I'm not really comfortable with that word either. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying, uh, as some might imply when they say that kind of thing, I'm not saying that Jesus is good and Christianity is bad. Not at all. Uh, no, Jesus did come to build his church. But he is not a member of the church. He is its head. And the reason this needs to be said is some people see Jesus as just another founder of another religion like Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy. But that would be to misunderstand Jesus and to miss the central teachings of Christianity. Uh, Jesus is different from every other founder of every other religion. In fact, he's not only different from every other founder of every other religion, he even stands out among people in the Bible, right, in Scripture itself. And one of the main lines of argument in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior Chapters 1 and 2, we saw Jesus was superior to the angels. In chapter 3, what we're looking at this morning, we see that Jesus is superior to Moses. Uh, later, we'll see that he's superior to Joshua and to the priesthood and to the sacrifices and on and on. See, it would be a mistake to see Jesus as just another. And to prove his point, the writer points to three things to show that Jesus is greater than Moses. He points to Jesus as our apostle and high priest, the builder of God's house, and one who is faithful as a son. So first, Jesus is our apostle and high priest. Again, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, by combining these two titles, apostle and high priest, the writer gives us uh, basically two halves of Jesus' work. Uh, apostle means one who was sent and Jesus was sent from the Father, uh, by the Father, to earth. Which means, of course, that Jesus is God from eternity and came into the world. He was sent from the Father. He came to do his Father's will. He came to reveal to us the Father's glory. As apostle, Jesus comes on the Father's behalf to represent the Father to us. Now, as high priest, though uh, still provided by the Father, Jesus represents us to the Father. Even now, Hebrews uh, will go on to say, uh, Jesus, as our resurrected high priest, always lives to make intercession for us. That is, Jesus presently is representing us before the Father's throne of grace. And so we see these two sides of Jesus' mediatorial work, he, representing the Father to us as the Apostle of God and representing us to the Father as our great high priest. Uh, next, Hebrews begins to, to compare Jesus to Moses. Uh, you might wonder why Moses, right? Uh, there are lots of people in Scripture that the writer could have picked up on. Why Moses? Well, one reason is that there are a lot of similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses spoke for God and so represented God to the people. And though Aaron, Moses' brother, properly speaking, was the high priest in Israel, Moses nevertheless frequently interceded on behalf of the people. In fact, had he not done so, they would have been destroyed. So the point of similarity, though, that our author draws is not Moses speaking for God or Moses interceding for the people. 
the point of similarity the author draws is faithfulness. Verses, again, one leading into two, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Both Moses and Jesus were faithful to their callings. Now, Moses, of course, was not perfect. Moses sinned against God. Jesus became like us in every way, yet without sin, right? That's a point of discontinuity. But Moses was faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. And now the context, right, as uh, the context of biblical quotations and allusions in the New Testament to the Old is always important. And the writer here in Hebrews is referring actually to an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 12. Back in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, they decide that, that they're not getting equal billing with Moses. And they, they spoke against him, uh, picking apart his personal life. And then they said this in Numbers 12 too. They say, has the Lord indeed not, uh, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? But the text goes on to say, and the Lord heard it. And here is how God responds. He says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See, God himself commends Moses as faithful in all his house. And the point uh, there is about where do we hear the voice of God? Remember, that, of course, that's the context of the book of Hebrews as well. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Or Hebrews 2, 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard that is the message declared by Jesus, attested by the apostles, and witnessed to by God through the Spirit. And the point is, Moses was faithful. Therefore, Miriam and Aaron and all Israel ought to listen to him. And Jesus also was faithful. And therefore, we ought to listen to him. And yet, if the writer had ended there, uh, we might have been left with the view that Jesus is just another Moses. But of course, that's not the case at all. So verses 3 and 4. For Jesus had been, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is worthy of more glory. Why? Well, while Moses was faithful in God's house, we're told that Jesus is the builder of the house. Uh, the word for house is probably doing almost triple duty in terms of what's being talked about here. Uh, on the one hand, you have the image of the house and its builder, and that image is pretty straightforward. But Moses' faithfulness in God's house is about God's household. Right? Moses is faithful among God's people. And of course, when we hear the phrase God's house in the context of Scripture, we cannot help but think about the temple, the house of God. And so all three of these meanings are playing off one another in the passage. And the point of contrast is this. Moses is faithful among God's people, among God's household. Moses was faithful as a part of God's people. 
But Jesus is worthy of more glory because he is the builder of the house. Jesus is not, again, he's not simply a member of the people of God. Jesus is the one who creates the people of God. And so Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. The church is the people of God, built up by Jesus. And it is God's temple, the place in which he dwells. And Paul actually brings uh, these three things together, uh, particularly people and temple, household and house, together in Ephesians 2, where he says this, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were near, to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, the household of God, the people, are being built into the house of God, the temple. Jesus came to build God's church, to establish the people of God, to join us together into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, what is amazing here is that Moses is faithful in God's house, a house built by Jesus. Now, how is that possible, right? Because Moses and Jesus are about 1,500 years apart. And, of course, the answer from Hebrews is this, that the people of God in the Old Testament were never complete until Jesus came to complete them. Uh, we see this at the end of Hebrews 11, uh, where we read, And all these, all the Old Testament saints, talked about in Hebrews 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, we could misunderstand the contrast between Moses and Jesus like this. Uh, we could say, uh, some, some might say, Moses is bad and Jesus is good. Follow Jesus. And of course, that would be, that would be the wrong contrast. Uh, others might say, well, Moses is old and Jesus is new, therefore follow Jesus. And that too would be the wrong contrast. Right? Moses is preparing for the coming of Jesus. Moses is good, right? The Old Testament is good because it testifies, verse 5 says, it testifies to the message of Jesus. And so whatever glory Moses might have had as a member of God's household... He's pointing forward to the greater glory of Jesus to come. And not because Moses as a part of God's house is bad, but because Jesus is ultimately the one who builds the house, who establishes it firm on the foundation. Not only that, but then we go on to verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that went, were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is faithful as a son. And so there's another contrast between Moses and Jesus. Moses was a servant. In fact, the Old Testament calls Moses the servant of the Lord, which far from being derogatory was a title of honor in the Old Testament. Moses is the servant of the Lord, and he is faithful in God's house as a servant. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. And now clearly, uh, right, there's an ancient cultural context here about the difference between servants and sons. Servants could certainly hold places of honor. They could have a level of status that demanded respect, but they still weren't sons. Right? The sons inherit the house, and so the son has authority over it. And Jesus is not just another servant. Uh, yes, he, he came to serve. 
And to give his life as a ransom for many, he said as much, but he did that willingly as a son. Jesus is the son, the son of God. He's not just another religious leader. He's not just another great religious leader. He is the son of God. Now, if Moses had authority in God's house and spoke God's word in God's house and ought to be listened to in God's house, how much more Jesus? He is the son, the the builder and owner of the house. All things were made by him and belong to him by virtue of creation. We've seen that earlier in Hebrews. But that is doubly true with respect to the church, the household of God. He founded it with his own blood at the cross. He purchased people for God, ransoming us from our sin. Jesus is worthy of more glory. He received that glory in the resurrection when he was crowned with glory and honor, raised up into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So the glories that await us are found in the glorious person, the greater glory of the person of Jesus, the one who built God's house with his blood and was then crowned with glory and honor. Therefore, hold fast. There is a a kind of common deception in life. Nobody says it. Nobody builds their lives on it. No, No one writes it in graduation cards to encourage graduates as they go off to face the world. But most of us believe it at some point in our lives, and that is that life should be easy. The Christian version is that the, the Christian life should be easy, right? You shouldn't have to, to work too hard at it. It should just come naturally. There are those who think the Christian life just happens, right, without any effort. Many of us just drift along. And yet if we're willing to drift along in the Christian life, we might wake up one morning and find that we have drifted away. Remember, that's, that's the part of the context of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the exhortation there is, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Well, here the writer encourages us in verse 1, Consider Jesus. And then in verse 6, he says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And here's the thing, we, we, are, we are so tempted to be enamored with the glories of this age that we miss the greater glory of the Son who became for a little while lower than the angels, purchased the church with his blood, and then was crowned with glory and honor. That message must grip your heart. And if the glory of Jesus doesn't grip your heart and you simply attempt to drift along, you will eventually drift away, Hebrews warns. And so how do we get that message As opposed to all of the the glories of this age that vie for our, our attention, how do we get that message, how do we get that person, the person of Jesus, to grip us and to take hold of us? Well, we consider Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus, right? Meditate on Jesus. Consider his person as the God man. Consider his work as apostle and high priest. Consider his glory as the builder of the house and the son who is over it. He is our confidence. He is our boast. He is our hope that because of what he did, we will be where he is. Consider Jesus. If you are doubting, consider Jesus. If you are fearful, consider Jesus. If you are hopeless, consider Jesus. And if this sounds superficial to you, oh, you mean if only I I think about Jesus, all my problems will be solved, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying any of your problems will be solved. The Christian life is hard and suffering is real, but that can either bring you to despair or grow you in confidence that we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with him, 
And that is our hope. And so, yes, my advice in most situations is consider Jesus. Hold fast to him. He has been where you are and he has gone where you want to be and he's the only one who can see you from point A to point B. Peter warns us at one point, if we are not growing in our faith, it is because we have forgotten the gospel. But if you want to grow in confidence and in your boast, in your hope, despite whatever troubles you may face, consider Jesus. And remember that the glories that await us us, are found in the glorious person of Jesus and therefore hold fast to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that the glories of this age do grip our hearts and we get so distracted by them that we forget to consider Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would set our eyes on him, that you would give us a clear sight of him, that we would marvel at him, at his person, at his work, at his greater glory, that we would be delighted in that and consumed with that, that we would rejoice in that. We pray that you would do this work in us by your spirit, that Christ would be glorified both in and through us as we share his glory with the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.